The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your kind work to draw us to yourself. You are the one that we need and we could not find our way back, so you have drawn us to yourself in grace and in mercy, full of love, and we say thank you for that. And we ask now, Lord, that as we consider your word this morning and as we we consider you and your ways and what you have done, that you would help us to understand something a little more, a little more deeply, a little more widely about the work that you have done to make us yours, how you have shown us love. Lord, some of these details are familiar to us, some of them are not. And so will you help us also to think clearly and to think well and to follow through what are some complex channels so we would see your word and see its testimony to Jesus to you and you loving us. So help me to be clear. Help us to listen well. And please, Lord, honor the Son here in our midst. He is worthy of all praise. And when he is honored, that's what feeds us and fills us and fuels us. Jesus honored in our hearts. So please help that. Lord, make that happen this morning, please, by your power. Make your word clear. Move through this time now and build your church to the praise and the glory of Jesus, I ask this. Thank you, Lord. Amen. One of the best known and most attractive attributes of the God of the Bible is love. Through popular Bible verses, through commonly known biblical phrases or stories, the idea that God is love is sort of the water that we swim in, at least in areas of the world that have been in some way affected by the Christian faith. Even people who aren't actually Christians, who aren't believers, kind of feel that, think it, swim in it, maybe not even knowing where it came from. But the idea that God loves human beings is common and, and treasured. But what exactly does that mean? In particular, what would it mean to, to, to live in that, to, to know it and to believe it, actually? Not just to kind of know it as some sort of background noise, but to actually hold it in front of your, your eyes, live in it, treasure it, live off of it. Well, Our passage today, Jeremiah 31, will touch on that, some of those themes, and and it will depict and and focus our attention on how and in what way God means to love people, how that gets expressed, and how it can be experienced now and forever. But in saying that, we, we need to be clear, this chapter is not a classroom lecture on love. It doesn't actually define it like a dictionary. It doesn't lay out every different aspect of, of love, God's love, people. It doesn't do it like that because it's poetry. It's a prophetic utterance given to the people of God through the prophet Jeremiah. Much of it you can tell looking at your Bible's typeset. It's, it's poetic, and so it takes some work. Jeremiah 
wrote this sometime around the year 600 B.C., give or take. You may recall some of this from last week. The Lord had sent this prophet Jeremiah to the southern kingdom of Judah and in particular to the capital city, Jerusalem, initially to give one final warning to his people. There had been a millennium of moving away from him, century upon century upon century, moving away from him. And so he sent Jeremiah and others with a final warning, a call to turn back. But then when that was rejected, the message became one of impending doom. Judgment's coming. God will pour out wrath to destroy sin. That was the message that came to be dominant, but laced in it always was also a message of hope because there was a promise that not only is the judgment against the sin coming, but there's hope coming behind that. And both of those themes woven together. We saw that last week in Jeremiah chapter 30. God did indeed decisively act against sin, and he also promised to one day act decisively to bring the people back to restore their fortunes. That was all all traced through Jeremiah 30, and we reflected on what that, that restoration might look like, what the hope might look like. We asked the question, what would Jesus do with this passage? And we saw a number of different connections. But still, it's not really completely clear. It just says the very last verse, very last sentence of the very last verse of Jeremiah 30, in the latter days you will understand this. And there's kind of a question left hanging there. And that's where we pick up today as we move into chapter 31. More poetry, some similar verses for sure, but there's a little more detail given to us and a little more explicit connection. So follow along with me as I, I'm going to read the first three verses, the setup verses of this chapter, and then I'll, I'll kind of skip through, I hope, in a slow enough way that you can follow along the first half of the chapter, the, the, the dream, or perhaps it's a vision that God gave to Jeremiah up through verse 24. So here's the context, beginning reading verses 1 to 3. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's the first three verses. It begins with that, that sweet couplet that we've seen before. At that time, the Lord will be God to this people, these descendants of Abraham, and they will be his people. After the sword of judgment, something sweet. The Lord himself, it says, appearing to them and bringing them grace in the wilderness. And why is he going to do that? Well, the end of verse 3 says, because of his love. He has a faithful love towards his people that is everlasting. And so he's going to act in grace, in love, appearing to them. That's the setup. And then the rest of the chapter then depicts what that's going to look like. Some of which we saw last week. Verses 4 to 6, he says something, again, I will build you. There's a, a rebuilding theme here, a restoration of, of the cities and, and a replanting of the crops and a regathering of the herds. There's a, a, a renewed vitality and prosperity for the community. 
which happens because the Lord's going to save his remnant from far away, from the farthest corners of the earth, from among the blind and lame even. That's in verse 8. They plead for mercy. Verse 9, you see that. And he brings them back. He brings them back, end of verse 10, like a shepherd who, who gathers together and then keeps his flock. Notice singing and shouting and dancing and feasting in verses 12 to 14 because when this rebuilding happens and when this gathering back happens and when the shepherding happens, prosperity and joy and delight covers the land. In verse 14, my people are satisfied with my goodness. Yes, the Lord cast them out to Babylon. Yes, he acted decisively against sin. He disciplined them and sent them away to captivity. And he had mercy on them and restored them. If you look at it, verses 18 to 20, you see there, I hear Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me. And his answer is, yes, indeed, I, I did. But, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Yes. Is he my darling child? Yes. As often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. My heart yearns for him. I will have mercy on him, declares the Lord. He has mercy, and so verse 21, he, he, calls, he calls him back, return, come back to your cities and set up signposts so you can know the way home. He brings them all back. He gathers them back to their cities, back to their land, such that verse 25, I, the Lord, will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish the end. The Lord's love and grace, his appearing drawing near to save and satisfy his people. That's a sweet thing for Jeremiah. And as he awakes from his, his dream or from his vision, he is delighted in what he has just seen. A sweet thing for him. And if you were an Israelite, a faithful Israel at some point with Jeremiah's writing here with, you know, the, so to speak, the, the book of Jeremiah open before you, having your quiet time some Tuesday morning, and, and you read this, you say, that is sweet and that is good that is delightful. It's full of hope and promise. And it's also maybe full of a little bit of confusion. Because you read it and it's good thing and good thing and good thing and good thing. But there's also some questions raised. As you read back through it and you look a little more closely, some questions raised about the message that Jeremiah is trying to deliver regarding this outpouring of God's grace, this outpouring of God's love, this appearing to his people. When? Maybe what? Two questions that would rise right out of this because when is this going to be exactly? And, and what exactly are you talking about? Those questions would come up and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to answer those two questions. We're going to ask them and then answer them. Starting with the when. This is the first main point of the sermon here. When is God going to show his love and grace to draw near? I mean, really, when? When is God going to show his love and grace to draw near? Well, we talked about this last week a little bit. You can, you can look at some of the language there, and certainly there are events in the 6th century, in the 5th century B.C., 
that this kind of language is pointing at. Groups of Israelites were gathered back from distant lands from Babylon. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah and you see it there. That happened. Certainly it's pointing at that. But if you sit there with Jeremiah 31 open, you, you, you say, ah, verse 7. Sing aloud with the gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts to the chief of the nations. Verse 11, you redeemed us from hands too strong for us. Sure, you brought us out of Babylon, uh uh-huh. But ever since then, Alexander the Great, the Egyptians, the Seleucids, the Romans, everybody, they all walk back and forth all over this land as they choose. We're we're hardly a self-sustaining colony let alone a kingdom, let alone the greatest of all the nations. What's that about? The chief of the nations? And we're hardly wealthy and full of abundance. Verse 12 says that, but it happened sort of, yes. I mean, certainly we came back and we experienced prosperity. We replanted. I mean, crops came back, animals came back. Sure, yeah, but only temporarily. And then when those people walk through, they raid us and steal everything. We're hardly like a well-watered garden with no more sorrow, glad and feasting and satisfied in the Lord, who, frankly, hardly shepherds us like a careful, attentive shepherd caring for a flock. The last prophet was 400 B.C., and the message he brought was, again, scathing indictment for our wickedness, and since then, nothing but silence. If this... Is 5th century B.C. If this, and I'm looking around seeing, is if that's God's love and that's God's grace and that's God's drawing near and that's God's shepherding us, I don't think I know what those words mean anymore. What are you talking about? I don't get that. And when is this actually going to happen? So notice what's going on here. And this is a, a common element of the prophets. If you pick up your Bible and you're going to read the prophets, you're going to see this a lot. What's going on commonly is something that is good and is certainly connected to here, yes, amen, but a fulfillment that's only partial, that's not complete and full yet. It connects but not quite perfectly, perfectly. it leaves you wondering. And in the midst of this passage, there's a little marker here It points us on beyond 5th century, beyond B.C. It points us on further to some other more appropriate connection point. Look at verses 15 to 17. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. They are no more. They are gone. Gone off to exile, he means. Verse 16, but stop your weeping, for there is reward. They will come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future because the children are going to come back from the foreign country back home. So again, it fits right in the context. Exile and return. It fits right there. But where else is that quoted? Do you know? Turn to Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew chapter 2, right in the middle of the Christmas story. If you turn there and you, and you look at it, you'll probably see it printed in some indented way to reveal that where the quote is. Quotes this verse from Jeremiah 31. But you could probably also just, you probably have bold type paragraph headings in your Bible. Look at what he quoted this between. What's before it and what's right after it? The Apostle Matthew is telling us something about when Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled. When it gets fleshed out. After God's beloved son Jesus is carried off to Egypt because of wickedness in the land of Israel. Wickedness that results first in death and destruction and then culminates finally with Jesus returning back to the land. That's right there in Matthew 2. So follow this closely. This can be fully confusing if this is the first time you've seen something like this. But what's going on here is we're seeing the Testaments tied together in a way very, very commonly done by, the, by God, the biblical writer. In the Old Testament, a, a pattern, a model created that, that means something but makes you wonder. And then in the New Testament, that model taken up again and given fuller, deeper, bigger, richer meaning. So we've got the model here in Jeremiah. People sent out of the land because of wickedness. God's beloved son, his son Ephraim, he even says. But I love him and I'm going to bring him back into the land. Exile and return. And then here in the New Testament, Matthew the Apostle says, that is fulfilled when Jesus the Son is sent out and when Jesus the Son comes back. Jeremiah was always pointing us towards when? Here. Towards Jesus. You read Jeremiah and you say, this is the story of God's faithful covenant love, of God's steadfast grace in the wilderness, of God's appearing to us. When is that? When Jesus appears. When Jesus comes. That's when God shows Abraham's children grace in the wilderness. That's when God shows Abraham's children steadfast, faithful love. So all of the scriptures are calling all of us to direct all of our attention to Jesus. This is the message for all the nations that should be declared in all the coastlands far away, if you echo the words of verse 10. Hear this word. God loves people in Jesus. And only in Jesus. Now I'm not talking about how there's, there's a general grace of God on all the world and in all kinds of circumstances. Indeed there is. I'm trying to focus us in right here. If you want to say God loves people, how does God love people? Where does God love people? When does God love people? The answer is Jesus. All of our attention should be drawn onto him. Which is useful for us if, 
If you happen to be somebody here this morning who's not a Christian but thinking about it, wondering, you've heard, you've kind of been swimming in the water of, of, of the United States, of the Western world, that God is love. How, where, when, in what way? Jesus, look at Jesus. Now, we haven't yet answered how, when, where, but right there in him, that's where your attention needs to be focused. It's a pointer. All the scriptures trying to draw all of the world's attention onto him. When he appears, that's when God's going to act in love and in grace. It's helpful for all of us, including us who already are Christians and already saw this coming 10 minutes ago, which I know you did. Do you forget Jesus? We can forget Jesus. And ironically, we can, we can think, we can begin to think that what we are engaged in here is a faith that is a religion, that is a pattern of life. I do certain things and I don't do other things. Sure, yes, uh-huh, there is that. But at the center of it all is a person, Jesus, and so the center of all of our faith and all of our life is a relationship with a person, Jesus. We celebrate, this time of year, we, we celebrate Christmas, and it has become fashion recently to say that Jesus is the reason for the season, and it, a quaint saying, that's actually true, you know? That's actually true. I delight in family gatherings and, and community decorations, and I, and I love kind of the, the feel of Christmas. I love the lights, and I love snow, and I love, I love all that stuff. But it's about Jesus. If there were no decorations and no lights, he's still there. We had opportunity one time to celebrate Christmas in the Middle East. Oddly, they celebrate Christmas in this Middle Eastern country. Santa Claus and lights everywhere. I think because they figured out they can sell some stuff. Like we do. They'd imported Christmas there too. It was present. But there wasn't anything about Jesus there. So we had to like bring him ourselves and it was actually a different feel for what, what we were doing and how we were thinking about Christmas and I kind of thought why don't we do this at, back in America? We, let's do that in America. Let, let's say Jesus. This is the definition of a simple point. It's about Jesus. But what is it? What are you talking about exactly? Exactly. Because once we've, once we've got our attention onto Jesus, actually asking the when question and answering it properly helps us answer the what question because we, we come to see him. We, we're looking at him then and we say, so what did you do when you sent Jesus? 
If this is where, if this is the person, if this is the time when you pour out your love, well, what is that? That's the second point. What is God doing in Christ to show his love and grace to draw near? At that time, I will be their God and they will be my people. When? When I come and appear in Jesus. So now follow along with me as I read Jeremiah 31 from verse 31. A familiar passage that's in this chapter. It's in this chapter. How does he show us grace? How does he show us love? Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31. God's doing something in particular. This here is how God shows his love and his grace. A new covenant. Through which comes a whole bunch of other blessings for sure, but the love and the grace from God to us in Christ. We look at this moment when Jesus, what a new covenant. That is a new ordered relationship a structured relationship between God and his people. One that's going to work differently than the old Mosaic covenant did. He made a covenant long time back. That one didn't work out so well. It had a couple of flaws in it. Not, not on God's part, but because of what it bumped into with us. And so God's going to make a new covenant. This one here, it's different. How so? Verses 33 and 34 give it to us in a nutshell. This new covenant is also going to feature the law of God. It says right there, there will be God's law present. God's instruction, God's guidance is a good thing. And it's present in the new covenant. It's not absent. He didn't throw it away. But it's present in a different way. It's uniquely internalized within the people and within each person in this covenant. It's not just written on paper, set off to the side somewhere that we can look at at a distance. It's written on our hearts, it says. And so I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the third time we've seen this in these two chapters. Repeated here again to make crystal clear to us that unique union of God and people, that bringing together of, of the two in fellowship, here is how I do that. In this covenant. In Jesus, in the new covenant. 
God and people brought together in fellowship, in communion, like like a family united, he's saying. Father and children. A people in covenant with God, and what we will experience is God's law written on us, not set apart, not distinct from us. We're not just going to look at God, look at God's values, look at God's requirements but it's going to actually move in and be inside of us. Think about that. Think about that. Do you know the difference between a husband and a wife, man and woman, going to, let's say, a Lamaze class, seeing the slides or the videos or whatever, reading the book, getting the instruction, it's going to feel like this. There's going to be a whole lot of pulling and a whole lot of stretching and a whole lot of pressure and some fear and some pain. And and here's how you deal with that. You respond like this, and they're both just seeing it and reading about it and imagining it. It's written in a book right next to them. And then it actually happens. It comes right up close and near. And they go through it. One of them goes through it. And she knows what the video was about. Right? He knows it in a different way because he now saw it, maybe, in living color, and experienced it and heard it and smelled it. And and it was in his senses, too. He got it a little bit differently, but not like she did. It's something now written on her heart. It's been uniquely internalized. All the information is still true. It's the same information, but it has been uniquely internalized. And there is now a different relationship between that mother and that experience. I know that one now. Not like I used to know it and not like you know it. I know it. Uniquely. I've experienced it. It's real for me. It's it's me That's what God's getting at here. He is pushing against, just in a book, just on the outside. And he's pushing against even, you're really close to it with with some other partner. You're, You're a part of a body of people that you see the fruit of it and you experience it. He's saying, you yourself on the inside. God and you joined on the inside. God's law, that is what God is. His person inside of you. Such that there's no need for anybody to teach you, know the Lord. You don't have to explain to a mother who's given birth, let me describe what it's like to you. I got it. Let me tell you what it's like. I got it. You know, there's no need to say know the Lord because they all know him from the least of them to the greatest. Everybody knows the Lord 
in this covenant community and knows him intimately and personally on the inside, not just on the outside. Why? Very last sentence. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Something stands between that experience of God and human beings and its sin. And what God has said remarkably and sweetly and and beautifully in this new covenant is I actually provide forgiveness so I can remove sin and throw it away as far as the east is from the west, gone. How does he do that? When does that happen in Jesus? When exactly does that happen? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and after dinner he took a cup and said, this cup is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. He's tying the cup to blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is the sacrifice. His blood shed died, he died, that makes the covenant, that ratifies the covenant. And his death also makes it possible for in this covenant God to actually forgive human beings. Human death in my place. Not an animal's death that had to go on and on and on. A human died in my place. That's where God makes covenant in the death of Jesus What are you doing, God, in Jesus to show me grace in the wilderness? What are you doing, God, in Jesus to show me your great love and your faithfulness? What are you doing, God, to appear to me in Jesus? I'm appearing to you in my Son to love you with his death, to save you from your sin. And you've got to put a gigantic comma on there because that's not the end point. Comma. So that you can experience me inside of you intimately, personally, relationally know God. That's what the covenant's about. It's not just about forgiveness of sin. It's about union. Forgiveness of sin for the sake of union. So we have to indeed sing and and praise and and give thanks for the cross and say thank you, Lord, for Jesus' sacrifice. But we have to go beyond that and say, really, that was so that we would get to the spot where we all know you. Because you, to know you, is life. This is life, that they would know you and the one you've sent. Jesus said that. Jesus prayed that. And then he provided it. He bears our sin for us in our place so that we can have barrier removed and intimacy restored, our fortunes reversed, brought back into his presence so that, in fact, we feast, enjoy, satisfied with the goodness of God. It actually happens. Verse 14 actually happens. Bless the Lord. What do you do with this then? 
What do you, what do, you do with this? I think, at least for me in this spot, the biggest takeaway from this is to see the connection. Grace, love, new covenant that is about knowing God. God loves you by introducing himself to you in a personal, intimate way so that you know him. God loves you by giving you relationship with him. I think many of us miss that and look for the love of God in the correction of the earthly circumstances all around us. And evaluate whether or not God is loving me by how things are going, if we're just simple and honest about it. It'd be easy to read this chapter and think, when does it happen in Jesus? Oh, good, okay, so in Jesus, that's when we become free and powerful and wealthy and relationally restored to one another. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Take care of the Romans, Jesus. That's how a lot of people read that. That's how a lot of people expected things to go. And I think that's how a lot of us today still think of things going. If you love me, you will provide for my material needs. If you love me, Lord, you'll take care of my health issues. If you love me, you will save my marriage. Or when those things don't happen, you must be gone. You must not be attendant. You must be absent. You must be cold and unloving towards me. And that is, that's, that's a crease right there that Satan loves to exploit in people. How could you say God loves you? Look at what he's done to you. Okay, let's go back to that. How can you say God loves you? Look what he's done to you. He brought you into communion with himself. That's what he's done to you. You see, there's a fork right there in the road. We are to look at what God's done to us, what God's done for us. But we are often, so often inclined, because this is how human beings work, we are so often inclined to look at the earthly circumstances and read God through them. And Satan loves to offer them up to us, all of their miseries and all the troubles and all the fears. This is what God has done or what God has left you to. Christian, read it the other way. What God has said is, here I, here I love you, here I show you grace, here I appear to you in Jesus in a new covenant that wipes away your sin and brings you into union with me so that you know me. Read the rest of life through that and step into life confident. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in fact, that's what the last part of the chapter is about. We, he moves back into more poetry in 35 and following. God's sure declaration, as sure as I made the earth and keep it, I'm going to keep this covenant. I'm not going back on it. It's certain. Step out into life certain of it. 
I'm yours and you're mine. I'm your God and you are my people. May God then take this and shine the light. That's like 2 Corinthians 4 about God shining light into our hearts so that we can see his glory in Jesus. May God take this light like a flashlight and, and shine it into your heart so that you would see not your circumstances, but you would see this covenant and believe I am loved by God in Christ. If you're not in Christ, come on in. Why not? Come on in. Here is where God's love is poured out. Here is where the one you were made for offers himself to you. And Jesus, come on in. Give yourself to Jesus and find this love and grace and presence of God. This heart-renewing grace of God. Come find it. But Christian, may God shine like a flashlight onto this reality in your life. You know him. You are loved by him. He wants you to know that. Not just, he doesn't just love you. He wants you to know that. Because we always do well when we know we are loved. He wants you to know that. And he wants you to know how you can know that. By rehearsing in your mind, by cultivating in your mind the truth that he has made covenant with me. And he is mine. And I am his. May God shine a light on that for you. But also then let me turn that back to you and say, are, are you standing in the light? Turn the imagery a little bit. Are you standing in the light? I find I know this stuff, and I find that I can wander off into corners and hallways that leave me kind of out there somewhere wondering, forgetting Jesus, wondering about his love for me because I'm reading him through the circumstances. I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for a long time. I can wander off. What about you? Maybe you want to use this season to in particular draw your attention back God sent his son for the sake of joining me to him in covenant. How can you cultivate that habit? What do you do? What could you do better? To stay fresh with the Bible, maybe. To say to stay fresh with other Christians in fellowship where we, we, we remind one another, we encourage one another. What, what would it be for you? Maybe something unique about this season, an, an Advent reading that traces God's work through the Old Testament. It, it could be anything. I, I, I don't have anything in particular to offer to you, but what do you do to cultivate freshness with God? To keep reminding yourself, I'm his, he's mine, He's loved me in covenant. I read the rest of life through that. That he would send Jesus to save you is the most remarkable truth in the creation. That he would send Jesus to save you. 
In Christ, he's loved you with an everlasting love and he's drawn you to him in loving kindness. Believe that. Rest in it and rejoice in it. That's the love of God for us in Christmas and always and into forever when this covenant is fully and finally in all of its beautiful wonder refreshed. We do still right now need teachers to explain to us, know the Lord in this way or that way because it's not full and complete yet. He hasn't come back. But he will. He's trustworthy and he will do it. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.